Happy Mother's Day on behalf of Crossroads. I'd just like to say a huge welcome to all the mothers out there, grandmas, all the influential women in our life. Uh, we celebrate you today not because Hallmark created a day, but because you have impacted our life even before our very first breath. So thank you for all that you are and thank you for all that you do for people like me. I'm blessed to have a front row seat for the past 24 years of my wife being a great mom to our three kids. If there's anything redeeming about our three kids, it's all glory to God and thanks to her. She has done a lot of heavy lifting and um, what my kids see in her is a heart that loves Jesus, a heart that's selfless and intentional and hardworking. Uh, she's fun loving, even though they don't believe it, but she is. And um, it's a privilege to do life with you, Christy, and also to watch our three kids be mothered by you. So thank you. I'm also privileged to have a mom that uh, loved and nurtured me. And uh, I've said this before, but like as a pastor's kid, it wasn't my dad's sermon one day a week that made me into the man I am, but my mom's sermons the other six days, right? So together they made it quite a pair. And uh, my mom taught me a lot of different lessons, how to vacuum a floor, how to dust furniture, how to uh, wax linoleum flooring, um, how to clean toilets, how to iron. It wasn't until I was an adult why I realized she taught me all those lessons, right? She got the benefit of that too, and so has my wife. Um, in fact, uh, my daughter, my oldest, was about 10 years old, and one Saturday night, I was ironing a shirt for church the next morning. And she entered our closet and said, uh, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm ironing a shirt. And she said, why? I said, well, for church tomorrow. She said, well, why are you doing it? And I said, because I can. My mom taught me how to iron it. Go ask your mom how happy she is that my mom taught me to do that, right? And I said, Jenna, one day you're going to like a boy, maybe when you're 30 or so. And uh, when you do, you need to ask him the most important question. And that is, do you know how to iron? And then I had a, like a second guess myself moment. I said, wait, wait, wait. There's actually two really important questions. Do you love Jesus and do you know how to iron? So still waiting on those questions to be answered by some young man. But uh, my mom, other than those lessons, also taught me lots of other things. Uh, she taught me how to love Jesus. She taught me how to be hospitable and to be generous. Uh, she taught me how to... Uh, just be creative, and uh, there are a lot of lessons that I've learned from her. I'd just like to pray. Would that be okay? Just pray over our moms and those special women in our life. Let's pray together. God, thank you for making uh, man and woman. Today, we're very grateful that one of the good gifts that you have given to us is our mothers. Lord, I am grateful, maybe like many who are here today, uh, for the moms that you've placed in our life. We didn't get to choose them. They didn't get to choose us, but... Out of that relationship, you have done some very wonderful things, and I want, am here to say thank you for that. God, I'm uh, also thankful uh, that you have placed those people in our life uh, to uh, help us do life together. God, I'm also mindful that there are probably people here today who uh, maybe don't have that great of a relationship with their mom. Maybe there's stress or strain or conflict. Maybe there's absence. Maybe there's even ignorance. They don't, they don't even know who their mom is. God, I pray for those you would really be close to in a very tangible way today. And I'm also quite sure there are women here today who would love to be a mother. and That hasn't happened for them. And so, God, I pray that you would comfort them with only peace that you can give. God, I thank you that you sent Jesus here to this earth to show us your heart. And, Lord, as we study your word today, my prayer is that we get a, a fuller, clearer picture 
of who you are, who your son Jesus is, that we would um, make an informed decision about who he is in our life and what he means to us. I pray that through what your Holy Spirit teaches us, God, we would choose to worship Jesus. We choose to follow him. We choose to trust him. And I pray that the world would be different because of that. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. In 1961, the Popular Mechanics magazine ran a story about a guy named Dr. Erwin Moon. He was uh, the director of the Moody Institute Technology in Los Angeles, and he wanted to experiment with something that is maybe unknown to you about our human body. The eye actually sees images upside down, and the brain has the job to invert those images into something that you and I can recognize. Dr. Moon wanted to see if he could trick his eye the other way, and so he invented these glasses, inversion goggles, and he wore them around every waking moment for weeks upon weeks to see if he could actually make sense of the world by looking at things upside down. And at first, it was pretty difficult. At first, he had trouble walking and even sitting in a chair. He tried to pour liquid in a glass and drink it. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of practicing, he finally was able to conquer some of those normal activities of life. And so then he pushed his experiment to the next level. Could he ride a motorcycle with everything that he sees in his visuals upside down? He did. He finally conquered riding a motorcycle, and so then he took it to the next level and decided, could he fly a plane where everything he looks at is upside down? Now, he did have his instrument license as a pilot before tackling this, and eventually he was able to fly a plane with everything upside down. Now, the process of that taught him some very important things. First of all, he made a warning. He encouraged no one to repeat the experiment because he found himself so disoriented, not just when the goggles were on, but after he took them off. In fact, he was found to not be able to like even speak coherently because this experiment had messed with his brain so much. Now, you might ask the question, why would our good friend Dr. Moon attempt something like that? Well, he wanted to demonstrate to you and me that we actually see things more with our brain than with our eyes. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been attempting to look at who Jesus is, to see him maybe more clearly so that we can make an informed decision that is Jesus worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of our followership? Is he worthy of our trust? To do so, we've been looking at the moments of Jesus' life recorded in the Bible. And we've also been reading a book entitled The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. Many of you have a copy of that book and you've been reading along. We've looked at things like the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is fully God but also fully human, and why that's significant and important. What can we learn about Jesus because of that? We also last week looked at the temptation of Jesus that he faced when he was head to head or face to face with the devil himself. Scripture teaches us that Jesus was tempted or has been tempted in every way that you are, except he never sinned. Now, if you were to take those two facts about Jesus, his incarnation and his victory over temptation, and you were to ask me, is that enough evidence for you to decide to worship, follow, and trust Jesus, I would tell you it is, yes. But there is so much more to look at about Jesus, and it will require us to look more with our brain than even with our eyes. If 
You were to look at all the things said about Jesus by skeptics, by those who followed Jesus, and even those who chose not to him. One common description made of Jesus is that he was a great teacher. People were amazed at Jesus' teaching. He taught with authority. It was obvious that he knew what he was talking about. When I had geometry as a sophomore in high school, our geometry teacher was also the girls' basketball coach, and he made a confession the very first day of class that he had not had geometry since he was a sophomore in high school, and let's just say it had been a few years. I didn't learn a lick about geometry that year. Why? Because he had no clue what he was talking about, right? It was obvious with Jesus that he knew what he was talking about. He understood God more than anybody, and he was able to connect all kinds of dots. He connected the dots of the Old Testament history of God's people with what the kingdom of God was all about. And he was so practical. He said profound things that if you listened and you paid attention and even tried them out, you'd begin to see him even more clearly. Now, uh, Jesus... His life is recorded in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's many of teachings of Jesus recorded in those four books. In fact, many of the teachings that are kind of littered all throughout the other three Gospels, Matthew kind of collects and clumps together in five major teachings throughout his book, the book of Matthew. And the first clumping of this has been entitled the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're not sure if it was one occasion where Jesus ripped off this sermon all at one sitting, or if it was a culmination of many of the teachings all put together by Matthew. But by looking at it, we can actually recognize maybe some of the most famous teachings that Jesus ever gave. They're recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you have a copy of the Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to there. We're not going to read line by line the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to look at at the Sermon on the Mount as a test sample of Jesus' teachings to see what we can learn about him and then make an informed decision about our relationship to him. I wonder if you could help finish some of these statements that Jesus made. They're pretty popular. Like, here's one. You are the salt of the earth, okay? You are the light of the, all right? Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off or That's right. If your right eye causes you to sin, what does he say to do? Gouge it out. Cut it out. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, right? He says you cannot serve both God and... Here's a little bit of a longer one, but he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log or plank in your own eye, right? A couple of ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will... Knock and the door will be open to you. And maybe the most famous, do to others as you would have them do unto you, right? Now, the Sermon on the Mount has received a lot of attention and scholarship. And so, I won't unpack it all for you today, but let's look and see the power that's found in Jesus' teaching. And there's, the first observation I make about the power in Jesus' teaching is this. There was idealism in his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount begins with what's called the Beatitudes. These are sayings that included blessings and principles for life. At first glance, you can look at these and they seem a little trite. They seem a little maybe out of touch. They seem maybe more impossible to ever follow. 
each of these eight or nine statements would have ripped like a chainsaw through the, the culture and the religious customs of Jesus' day. But they also teach us a lot about what the kingdom of God is all about. They are descriptions of those who choose to be part of the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are a description of how life works in God's kingdom. They seem to follow a progression of human condition. And that's something that I noticed for the first time this week. Jesus offers an ideal way that, that life kind of progresses. And he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Luke records this, the Beatitudes, and he just leaves it at blessed are the poor. And most people think, well, that's about economic realities. But really, it's about a spiritual reality. These are people who understand they need help. They are desolate on their own. Somebody says, if you want to make a ladder, well, make sure that the first rung is so low to the ground that everybody can take the first step. And I think that's why Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Many have said that it's easier to look up when you're laying flat on your back. I hope you don't have to lay flat on your back to begin to have a heart that recognizes you cannot do life on your own. It begins by being poor in spirit. And then on top of that, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, those who recognize and are grieved by their own sinfulness. On top of that, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. These are those who are humble, willing to submit to authority. They have a disregard for their own rights. And next, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. One commentator said, these are people who are not satisfied by a small snack. One trip to the atrium for a donut is not going to cut it for these people. That's how we would say it maybe here at Crossroads, right? I think these are the people that Jesus was referring back to in Matthew 4 when Satan tempted him to turn stones into bread. He says, no, no, man doesn't live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the type of person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. They experience and express the goodness of God in their life, but also for his purposes. Then Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Those who recognize their need for mercy, but yet they also show and give mercy to others. They're the type of person that's always looking for those who might be weak or hurt or in need, and they respond. On top of that, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, those who are holy, those who have honesty in their inner parts, who reflect the character of God. Aren't you glad that pure in heart wasn't the first one? Because then we would all be like, oh, not me, can't do that one, right? On top of pure in heart, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Not those who live in peace. Every mother knows the, 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 what that reality looks like, right? These are people who bring peace. These are people who overcome evil with good. And finally, for the type of person who lives this way, the top of the ladder is this. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. I mean, isn't that an upside down, backwards way of living? That when you are living this way, what you should expect is abuse. What you should expect is to be misunderstood, to maybe even not be taken seriously. Philip Yancey in his book says this. I view the Beatitudes not as patronizing slogans, but as profound insights into the mystery of human existence. God's kingdom turns the tables upside down. The poor, the hungry, the mourners, and the oppressed are truly blessed, not because of their miserable states, of course. Jesus spends much of his life trying to remedy those miseries, 
Rather, they are blessed because of an innate advantage they hold over those more comfortable and self-sufficient. People who are rich, successful, even beautiful, may well go through life relying on their natural gifts. People who lack such natural advantages, hence underqualified for success in the kingdom of this world, just might turn to God in their time of need. The Beatitudes are not a list of to-dos to check off, but instead a description of who you and I are to be. Jesus' teachings define what the kingdom of God is, and he describes those who are part of it. And he's clear about the upside-down way of understanding this. It's about ability, not desire. Yancey writes, not only did Jesus offer us an ideal for us to strive toward with appropriate rewards in view, not only did he turn the tables on our success-addicted society, he also set forth a plain formula of psychological truth, the deepest level of truth that we can know on earth. The Beatitudes reveal that, the, that what succeeds in the kingdom of heaven also benefits us most in this life here and now. Jesus' teaching involved the ideal. It also involved the true intent behind the heart of God. All of us recognize that rules have a backstory, right? I mean, there might be a rule at your workplace that says, do not place liquid containers on top of the copier machine. Why is that? Well, probably somewhere in history, someone placed a container of liquid on top of the copier machine, and somehow that liquid got out of that container and ruined the copier. So therefore, now there's a rule, do not place liquid containers on the copier, right? If I was to come to your house, there might be rules that you should obey or I should obey in the kitchen, maybe even in the bathroom. And if we got behind those rules, we would probably realize that something at one point went wrong in the kitchen and now there's a rule. Something at one point went wrong in the bathroom and now there's a rule. They may not be in print. If they are, they're probably on the refrigerator, right? Jesus came fully God and fully man to give us the backstory on God's heart to give us the backstory on his laws and on his commands. Jesus was able to fully display the character of God. Many times in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout other recorded teachings by Jesus, he's revealing the true intent behind God's laws and instructions. The Old Testament kind of records God's people's inability to obey. I mean, they would hear what God instructed and then they basically do the opposite, or whatever they wanted. By the time Jesus came to earth, the religious leaders of his time had turned the law into a form of rules and regulations that were really designed to not anger God, really designed to earn their salvation, not really how to live and love in relationship with him. And so Jesus had to set that all straight. In fact, one of the statements he makes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records, and he says this, don't misunderstand why I've come, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least command and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them, to, or teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I warn you, 
Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then proceeds to address the misunderstanding and misconceptions about the law. And he made several statements like this. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say that anyone who is angry with someone or calls someone stupid or a fool is in the danger of the fire of hell. Now, he's not saying that anger and murder are on the same level in violence, but he is saying that both of them are equally the opposite of a life that honors God. He stresses how important it is to seek reconciliation between two people even before going to worship. He encourages people who have a, a disagreement to settle that disagreement before having to involve a judge. It stresses how important our relationship is with each other in God's sight. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at someone lustfully, you're committing adultery with her or him in your heart. The teachers of Jesus' day were basically saying, you can look at the menu, you just can't order. That was opposite of what God was saying. God was saying that you can murder someone and commit adultery with them with even, without even laying a hand on them. You can commit adultery and murder in your heart or in your mind. It's a slippery slope when you and I begin to think that we can have ideas or intent and not acting on them and still be good with God. It's a dangerous place for us to put ourselves in to think that we have control over our intentions because often our intentions lead to behavior. Even more typical when they are sinful or not honoring to God. Jesus goes on to say, even though there are ways to get a divorce, you, you shouldn't do it. What is legal doesn't mean it's right. Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Basically, like, if somebody hurts you, you have the responsibility to return the favor. But Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how it is with the people who make up the kingdom of God. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hurt you. And the rationale for that, Jesus says, is God. He says, God sends sun and rain on both the righteous and the wicked. God does not withhold his blessing based on people's behavior, nor should we. He's not dismissing the wrong or the wrong done. He is picking up the cause for those who have violated or been violated. And Jesus says, our hearts should reflect the heart of God. We should love those, even when those are hurting us. He goes on to address how to give generously how to pray, how to fast, how to keep focused and prioritized on the kingdom of God, not to worry or not to judge others. And finally, he, he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with a challenge to seek first the kingdom of God ab above all things. Yancey writes, for years I had thought of the Sermon on the Mount as a blueprint for human behavior that no one could possibly follow. Reading it again, I found that Jesus gave these words not to cumber us, but to tell us what God is like. The character of God is the urtex. I had to stop there when I was reading and like, I don't know what that word means. So I looked it up in the dictionary and basically what Yancey is saying is the, the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The character of God is the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Why should we love our enemies? 
Because our Clement father, time out, I didn't know what Clement meant, so I had to go back and say, what does Clement mean? Gentle in nature. Because our God, who is gentle in nature, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Why be perfect? Because God is perfect. Why store up treasures in heaven? Because the Father lives there and will lavishly reward us. Why live without fear and worry? Because the same God who clothes the lilies and the grass of the field has promised to take care of us. Why pray? Well, if an earthly father gives his son bread or fish, how much more will the Father in heaven give gifts, good gifts to those who ask of him? Jesus' teachings reveal the character of God. It, he reveals the heart of God. And it should draw us closer to him, to want to worship him and to trust him. I also see in Jesus' teaching there's power because Jesus stresses the importance of his teaching. Matthew records at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses a few powerful illustrations that teach us and stress the importance of what his teachings are all about. What hangs in the balance of us believing and following. The New Living Translation records Jesus' words in Matthew 7 to say this, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. You see that upside down backwards way that Jesus is, is addressing those who follow him? If he wanted to build a crowd, wouldn't he say, oh, it's easy, don't worry about the fine print, just sign here, right? That's not how Jesus approached it. His teachings might seem upside down or countercultural, but they're trustworthy. They lead to life. Don't be confused or misled by what is popular, what is mainstream, what is accepted, or even what is celebrated in our world. Just because the line is long doesn't mean where it's headed is where you should be. Jesus goes on to say, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Crowds flocked to Jesus. Many times when Jesus was teaching, he was surrounded by multitudes, literally thousands of people who were all leaning in to hear what he had to say. But Jesus didn't come to draw a crowd. He came to bring salvation. He came to usher in the kingdom of God. Therefore, his teachings should not be ignored or discounted. After a moment where Jesus had been teaching, John records that many of his disciples heard Jesus' words and they came to the conclusion they were just too hard to follow. And so they deserted Jesus. Watching this happen, Jesus turned to his closest friends, the 12 disciples, and he said, are you going to leave too? I love what John records Peter saying. He says, where else would we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus never promised that his instructions were easy to obey. He never promised a pain-free life for those who choose to follow him. He did promise that he came to bring life and life to the full. Jesus then wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with this 
powerful illustration here. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rode, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Both houses had rains that came down. Both houses had streams that rose. Both houses had winds that beat against them. One built its foundation on sand, and it fell with a great crash. The other had a foundation that was built on a rock, and I think there was a pun intended. It was, that pun was intended to refer to Jesus, who is seen as the rock. The house did not fall. Jesus' teachings offer you and me something to build our life on. History has recorded that Mahatma Gandhi, who was an, uh, uh, an Indian man who is known as a philosopher and, and um, just a, a guy who many people pattern their life after, he chose to pattern his life after the teachings of Jesus Christ. History does not ever record that Gandhi surrendered or acknowledged Jesus as the Lord and Savior of his life. He just saw the way Jesus lived and said, that looks good. I'm going I'm to base my life on that. And he did. And it influenced many people. One person influenced by the way that Gandhi lived his life was a person that you and I know in our country, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he saw the way that Gandhi responded to persecution in a nonviolent way and other aspects, and it rang a bell for Dr. Martin Luther King. He knew the source of that wisdom, and he did surrender his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. perfect? No, nor are you or I. But he knew the source of that wisdom, and he chose to acknowledge that. And the way that Jesus lived showed to be the right way. Yancey points out this. He says, though I have tried at times to dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as rhetorical excess, the more I study Jesus, the more I realize the statements contained here lie at the heart of his message. If I fail to understand his teachings, I fail to understand him. He goes on to write, Jesus knew how life works. In the kingdom of heaven as well as in the kingdom of this world. Fully God and fully man, right? In a life characterized by poverty, mourning, meekness, a hunger for righteousness, mercy, purity, peacemaking, and persecution, Jesus himself embodied the Beatitudes. Perhaps he even conceived the Beatitudes as a sermon to himself as well as to the rest of us. For he would have much opportunity to practice these hard truths. My summary of Jesus' teachings would be this. He practiced what he preached. I don't know about you, but for my own understanding, my own uh, investigation into Jesus' teachings, they all look like a bunch of words on a page for many parts of my life. For most of my life, I went to Sunday school and to church and was influenced by godly parents and had many spiritual people pouring into my life to teach me what Jesus' words were. But they never came off the page until I started to test to see if they really did work out in the end. 
What Jesus had to say, was that really the way to treat the people around me? What Jesus was teaching, is that really the, the higher way, the best way? And while I can stand before you and admit that I have not been perfect at following Jesus' teachings, I have found in them the only way to truly live. The only way that, that has peace and comfort and purpose and direction and influence in life my life, is in following the way that Jesus lived, in following the way that Jesus loved, even following the way that Jesus led. I want to challenge you, and maybe it'll be for the first time, maybe after you've taken mom out for lunch here in a little bit, and maybe you've let her do whatever she wants to do today, it might free you up a little bit of time in one sitting to read for the first time all of the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Or maybe um, it's for the hundredth time that you might read. But I hope both groups would listen with their brain maybe more than their ears or eyes this time. Maybe they'd listen to hear Jesus' words in a fresh way so that you can make an informed decision. Is, is what he has to say worthy of my trust, of my worship, of my followership? I would challenge you to put to test Make a list of those things that may seem out of touch with reality or maybe just too good to be true and then try them. It might feel like putting on some inversion goggles that causes you to see the world upside down, maybe backwards in a way that you've never seen before. But I would challenge you to be humble and submissive to God's ways instead of being prideful and arrogant and see whose kingdom offers you the fuller life. I'd encourage you and even challenge you to be loving instead of retaliating, forgiving instead of revengeful, and just see how much more peace and rest your heart feels. Try hungering and thirsting for righteousness instead of hating or lusting, chasing after riches or power or the things that this kingdom of the world offers you and see which fulfills and satisfies you more. I'd encourage you and challenge you to build your life on Jesus and his teachings. Let them establish for you a, a firm foundation to build your life on as you worship him, as you follow him, and as you trust him. Maybe you're here today and you have questions about Jesus. Maybe you're here and you wonder about some of the things that you've heard Jesus said. Are they really true? Is that really what he said? How do I go about living them in your life? I'd be honored to meet with you right up front after our service, along with one of our elders, Dwight Silvera. We'd be happy to help pray with you and just start to walk through how to find the answers that maybe your heart needs and looking for. If you're worshiping with us online, you can just simply text the word now to 812-858-8668, or you can do that right here from this setting or later on this afternoon. I would just encourage you, to make an informed decision, not just take somebody else's word for it, but consider the facts about Jesus, his incarnation, his interaction and success over temptation, and also what he, teach, what he taught and how he lived. And then make a decision, is he worthy of your worship, your followership, your trust? I'm going to pray that you'll find he will be. Would you join me in praying? God, thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus. God, all of the wisdom that you have, all of the compassion that you have, all of the grace and forgiveness 
all of the light and purity and holiness that you have, you wrapped in human flesh and visited our planet. And God, I'm grateful that in Jesus we can see those things with our eyes, but we can also begin to comprehend them with our minds. We can also let them sink deep into our heart. And God, what I have found as that has happened is I have found you worthy of my trust. I have found you worthy of my worship. I have found you worthy of following you. God, I thank you for the grace and mercy you've poured out on me for the times where I've listened to Jesus' teachings and I've chose my own way. I've built my life on sand instead of the rock of Jesus and the wisdom that he offers. And so God, I pray that for anybody who might have found themselves in that same situation, God, you would shower us with your love and grace. And God, I pray that we would begin laying our lives more and more on the foundation found in Jesus, in the teachings, in his example, in his way of life, the way that he treats other people, God. And even if the world calls us foolish, seems like that we're living out of touch with reality or, or m- m- marching to a different beat, God, I pray they would at least notice and see a clear picture of your heart and who you are. And I do pray that they would find you worthy of their worship, their trust, their followership. And I pray that work would happen through the Holy Spirit in my life and all those listening today. Pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.